Thank you so much to our choir, and thank you, Aaron, for leading us in worship this morning. Glad that you're here. Take your Bibles if you would. We're going to be reading Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and following. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. We're glad that you have. I find myself grateful for many things, and one of those, of course, is that, uh, that you are here today. Appreciate you coming and being a part. I hate to preach to all empty chairs. Also, I'm grateful for the fact that... Uh, uh, the severe storms have not headed our way. We appreciate those, or pray for those. We appreciate the fact that that has happened, but pray for those who have been, or maybe even in the midst of the storm, as uh, Nick has already prayed for today. I'm thankful as I look at you that uh, I, uh, it was not just a few years ago that this would have been a pretty good crowd for an early service. So uh, we're thankful for that, that, that even on a low service, kind of, uh, we look for a lot more usually on the today, but we're glad that you're here. And it would be okay with me if some of your Sunday school members happen to float in for Sunday school. You remind them we have a second service. Tend to check. We'll wait. It'll be okay. They could come on if we have another service that they can come on to. As uh, probably rain will have stopped uh, by that time. But uh, good to see you here today. But most of all, I'm thankful that Jesus is our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We've come to celebrate Him. We are on a trek, always on a trek. We're always looking and heading in a certain direction. It is the purpose and meaning overall. We are even in our messages that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. If you look across your page, if you're already in Romans chapter 7, you might find Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 where it talks about the Spirit of Christ, the same one that has risen Christ from the dead. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, you also will be given new life in your mortal bodies. And we'll be talking more about that next Sunday. But we're excited to continue to be a part. Know that the Lord has purpose for us here today. We're in Romans uh, chapter 7, going to be reading verses 14 through 25. Would you stand and honor the reading of God's Word today? This now is the Word of God. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." May the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word today, and you may be seated. It was five days before Jesus would be arrested and would be crucified. It was one week before the first resurrection on which Jesus Christ rose from the dead that Jesus came riding from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, riding on the colt of a donkey. And as He came in, the Bible tells us there were at least three crowds. There was a crowd that followed Jesus. There was a crowd that went before Jesus as He came across the Mount of Olives. And then there was a crowd that was there at the, in Jerusalem waiting for Jesus as He came. It was a large gathering. And many of them took off their cloaks 
and they laid them on the ground. Others grabbed cut palm branches and either waved them or laid them out on the road. And it was a red carpet type setting that came in as Jesus made His way into Jerusalem on that day because the people recognized what was happening, or at least partly because it was the fulfillment of prophecy that the king would come riding on the coat of a donkey. And Zechariah tells us, And they came and they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a large crowd there that day because they were there for the celebration of the Passover. And as they came and they recognized that Jesus was coming, and he was, as it was intended by Jesus, declaring himself to be king. Yet the crowd didn't quite understand the kind of king that he was going to be. Or they were a crowd that could be easily swayed because it would be some of the same ones who were in Jerusalem who would five days later be yelling on Good Friday, crucify Him, crucify Him. What was it that brought about the change in the crowd? Or for those of us who are living in the here and now, what is it that causes us to do one thing on one day, yet on another day or under different circumstances, we'll do something totally different? Or... We'll say something completely different. Or, as the Apostle Paul expressed, why the moment I try to do good, sin is there to trip me up. The title of the sermon, I don't know if you've noticed it before, but it was chosen several weeks ago and actually written down somewhere on a piece of paper as we began to be ready for these messages. The storm that you cannot see. But I guess it has served at least as a good illustration without maybe seeing it face to face with the storms that you can see because... We know about tornadoes. We know about them anyway. and We know tornadoes are the most severe of all land wind storms. They're the most common in the southern part of the United States and the southeastern part. We have more tornado warnings and more tornado watches than any other place in the world. They usually form along a cold front when a mass of cold air forces its way under warm, moist air. And it causes the warm air to rise rapidly. And as the warm air rises, the elements begin to twist in a revolving fashion, which turns counterclockwise. Thus, we have the term tornado, which comes from a Spanish or a Latin word meaning twister. Now, as I read Paul's letter in chapter 7 of Romans, I'm reading 45 times Paul uses the first personal pronoun I and as I read it one of the first things that come to my mind is twister, tongue twister first and foremost. I've practiced it many times. I don't know if you've read this or ever tried to read it out loud. It's easy to be able to have a little tongue twister along the way. But there's another type of twist to it as well. Just as the tornado is the most common to only one part of the world, This kind of twister that Paul is talking about is most common to only one kind of person. When a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, they're met with the warm fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Well, we can go through periods of our life and we feel like as we're walking, whether it could be the dead of winter, and we could feel like sometimes because of the warm fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it's like a spring day. And we can sing heavenly sun-like and I got peace like a river and sunshine in my soul with joy and enthusiasm. But then sometimes in unpredictable fashion, we're met with the cold air of this world and its temptations and its struggles. And we often talk about the storms in the life that we must go through. And those storms may be in the form of broken relationships. They could be for financial hardships. They could be health conditions or even persecution. Persecution. 
Perhaps some of you can relate to the Apostle Paul. Biggest storm is not what's happening on the outside, but sometimes it could be the biggest storm is what's happening on the inside. Once we, ones we cannot see, it's the true twister. Well, the struggle on the inside is not always in discovering the right thing to do. The struggle may not even be in wanting to do the right thing. The struggle might be in carrying it out and actually doing it. Does Paul not express what we sometimes feel? I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. There's no way to tell you when the inner struggles will occur. But perhaps we can tell, if you're following along with your notes, when conditions are favorable for the inner storms and struggles. When the conditions are favorable for the inner storms and struggles. According to the New Testament, there are three kinds of people that live in this world. There are the non-Christians. The non-Christians, that lost person. The person who's not accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. One of the hard truths of the Bible is this. Not everyone will go to heaven. Not all good people will go to heaven. Sometimes we have a misunderstanding about what heaven is and who it's for. Sometimes we think heaven's for the good people and hell's for the bad people. It might shock some to find out that heaven is a place for sinners. If it's not, I'm going to be in trouble. How about you? The difference is sinners who will be in heaven are forgiven by their Savior. They've experienced the grace of God. Therefore, because we have a holy God, we know that our sins have been taken away. And because of that, we know that we can spend eternity with Him and with our Lord in heaven and also have fellowship as well. One of the often asked questions is, how can a loving God send a good person to hell? Well, the answer is, is that He doesn't. Our sins convict us and condemn us. None of us deserve heaven or to know God. But Christ is the remedy of the problem of sin. We've already read in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If you look right across your page from Romans 7, you'll find Romans 6.23 where it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. So perhaps this is the inner struggle Paul's talking about. Surely it's not the Christian who has a struggle of doing the right thing to this degree that Paul means. Paul, Paul must have been talking about before he became a Christian. No, before he became a Christian, Paul tells about himself. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I tried and saw, he said, I did follow the letter of the law. He did not think he was doing wrong until he had an encounter with Jesus. Now, for those of you who are English majors, you might notice that the verbs in the last chapter of last part of chapter 7 are all present tense. The non-Christian may struggle with wanting to do right, but here's a her remedy is needing to accept Jesus. And if you're here today and you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or given your heart and life to Him, we invite you to confess Jesus today to become His disciple and to follow Him. The Bible also says second kind of person that's in this world is the worldly Christian. Sometimes a biblical word is called the carnal Christian. We find in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ. The Bible speaks of the person who is saved, but even though they're saved and they know Christ, their allegiance is more to this world than it is to the next world. Their allegiance is more to the things that they can see than it is to have a relationship and a growing relationship with Christ. But when Jesus knocks on your heart's door, He calls you not only for salvation, but He calls you to ask Christ to be Lord of your life as well. He wants to come in and He wants to clean house. 
some years ago I did a revival and uh, the, the invitation hymn or the song of response at the end of every revival service was the exact same song. For there and there was five songs that we, five services and every time you could probably guess which one it was. It was just as I am. And I thought to myself, I even thought about, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll ask them maybe to change it up some, you know, by the time we get to the end. But when people started responding to the invitation, I thought, well, probably they thought, well, hey, don't fix what's working. So they just kept singing just as I am. And so I thought, well, maybe they were a little bit superstitious about it. But no, maybe that wasn't it. Maybe it was the words of just as I am. In other words, Jesus Christ accepts us just as we are. He doesn't ask us to change and then come. He wants you to come just as you are, then He works on changing you. But not all Christians let Jesus be Lord of every area of their life. Is your salvation secure? Yes, it is. If you've given your heart genuine, had a genuine conversion experience of giving your heart and life to Jesus. But why would we choose to walk in the desert when we have opportunity to dwell in the promised land? Eternity begins the day you are saved. But so many believers, maybe even the majority, Cling to the things of this world instead of clinging to the things of God. So maybe this is what Paul's talking about. The struggle of the worldly Christian. He knows he should do better but fails to do so. He or she feels bad about that. But I used to think that about this passage. Though Paul wrote this book several years after he met Jesus on the Damascus Road. Maybe he's writing this passage about right after he became a Christian. When he's first maybe a babe in Christ. A little more worldlier at that time. And while it may be that the Lord may say to you today, you no longer need to be a carnal Christian, you need to stop living for self or the world and start serving and living for Jesus. However, I don't think these are the conditions this passage is referring to. Paul here, and I believe this passage refers to the spiritual-minded, growing Christian. Third type of person that's in this world. We know that there are non-Christians, those who don't know Christ. The Bible talks about worldly Christians. You know Christ, but you're still living for this world instead of living for Jesus. And then there's the spiritually minded, growing Christian. None of us are perfect, but we want to be that type of person. And the reference is to a real inner struggle, a true inner storm, the struggle inside. Most worldly, immature Christians do not even show up on the Doppler radar screen to use something that you've been probably looking at very recently. They might feel bad, but their true desires for the things of this world. If we're not walking in the warm fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then there's no conflict when the cold air of the world comes along. When cold air meets cold air, what, what happens? Cold air. When, war, when hot air meets hot air, what happens? It's a Baptist preacher. I'm just seeing if anybody's still awake and you're still with me. Okay? Okay. Uh, every Christian who has taught the Word of God and who is honest is aware that our lives fall far short of God's perfect standard and His glory. We fall back into practicing sin far too often. And though we have a new Heavenly Father, He's given us a new heart. We are no longer of this world, no longer slaves to sin. We're still tempted. We still are allured to sin. Yet we cannot be happy with our sin. It's contrary to our new nature. The turning back of the Christian grieves the Lord as it talks about in verse 24. and It should grieve our own inner being. In fact, Paul describes himself, even at the time of this writing, as one of the most, of a, as a spiritually minded Christian. I used to naively think, as I looked at the women and men of the church who were spiritually mature, that one day I'm going to get there. 
Oh, one day I'm not going to have the temptations. One day I'm not, not going to have to worry about the flesh being in uh, conflict with what the Lord wants me to do and what I truly want to do. But the closer we get to God, the more we see our own sin. It's the worldly, immature, or even legalistic Christian who can fool themselves into thinking they measure up or that they feel they are good enough or even super spiritual. Boy, how can we find ourselves and think we're super spiritual that we have even Paul yelling out here, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Could a Christian utter such a cry? Could a mature believer utter such a cry? Perhaps only a spiritually minded Christian could. Because the further that we advance in discipleship, the clearer we see the heights that God calls us to. We see our imperfections and we see how we ought to be where we want to be versus where we really are. In Paul's plea in verse 24, it reminds us of the prophet Isaiah. The great prophet Isaiah, when he came in the presence of the Lord, what did he cry out? He said, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you ever go beyond just feeling bad because of sin to having the real inner struggle, it may be an indication that you're heading in the right direction and can identify with the Apostle Paul in the battle between the new nature and the old. Now the struggles and the doubts that you have do not mean that you have no faith. It does not mean that you're not a part of the family of God. I've heard some preachers seem to indicate that if you're having real spiritual struggles, if you're having doubts, then perhaps maybe you're not really saved. You know, that sounds like something that Satan would tell us. Instead, we find Jesus saying you can expect struggles of all kinds. And it helps us to know that someone like the Apostle Paul had some of the same kind of battles with the old self and the new person in Christ. And perhaps like Paul, the old self wins far too many times. So this is not the battle of the lost person. It's not even the battle of the immature or the worldly Christian. To the contrary, it could be a reflection that you're maturing in the faith. It's not that the lost or the worldly Christian does not know what sin is, only that saved individual in a right relationship with Jesus really knows the sinfulness of sin. Only those who are growing closer to Christ can understand what Christ did for us on the cross and the difference that it makes. And we are able to comprehend a little bit more of what God's grace is. So now that we know the conditions which are favorable for such a struggle, well, what do we do about it? Most of you by now, particularly after what happened in Beauregard a few weeks ago, you have a weather plan. A bad weather plan. You've got a basement that you're going to go to. You've got to come to some kind of shelter. You know the middle room that you're going to head to. Even this week, we talked with our safety and security team. And there we're on alert. Thank goodness, hopefully all the storm has passed. We don't have to be on alert here anymore. But we were ready. We've got places that are part of a safety shelter in our church. We were ready to send you. We feel like that's important. We want it to be important to you. How much more important it is that... We have a place and we have a plan for us so that we might be able to deal with the inner storms that you cannot see. Well, Paul gives us a little bit more than a hint from this passage. Was, was Paul revealing here that he lived a double life? That this missionary to the Gentiles, writer of at least 13 letters in the New Testament, had blatant sins that we know not of? No, I don't think so. He indicated that it was a battle with the flesh, the sin within, 
in the mind and his desire to do what was right. Any, indicating that anything that we do under our own flesh and under our own power, even if it's something good, it reeks of sin and of our sinful nature if we try to do it on our own. When we try to do all things ourselves, we find that it's sin that takes residence. Verse 17 says that we read a moment ago, so now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within. It's also often described as a house guest that comes to stay for a while and will not leave. Several years ago, I was, uh, I was uh, working for a church in North Alabama just for the summer, full-time for the summer. This before I was married, of course. And, and as I was, had a friend that called me up a few years older than I was. He'd graduated. I was still in school. And uh, he said, hey, I'm going to come see you for a few days, maybe a week. I said, oh, come on. They've given me this big house to live in. Will you come on and stay with me for a few days? It'd be great. And uh, they give me this house, seven or eight rooms that they have. So he came and stayed. Now, it was several rooms, but there was only two rooms with furniture. That was the bedroom and the den. And when he came, I said, it's only a few days. I said, tell you what, you stay in the bedroom. I'll sleep on the couch. It's just going to be for a few days. Come on and let's stay. It'd be great. Well, he came and he stayed a few days. He stayed a week. He stayed two weeks. He stayed a month. He stayed over a month. Wouldn't have been so bad, but he ran out of money after the first week. His car broke down on the fourth week. And I was paying all the bills. I was... Uh, buying all the food. Any extracurricular activities came out of my pocket and I was making a whopping maybe $150, $175 a week. And I finally said, thought to myself, I'm going to have to have a heart-to-heart. And so, you know, of course, I talked to him with much tact. And I said, you're killing me. Get out of my house. Go home. And I filled up his uh, tank with gas, gave him a little more money for uh, for food and a little bit more money for gas to be, so he might be able to get home and he promised me that he'd pay me back and more. Well, that was 35 years ago. I'm still waiting for that money. Temptation and sin come and sin in and says, I just want to stay a little while. I will not take up much room, but it takes up residence. It takes the room in your heart that should be there for the Holy Spirit. Sin gives promise of something for you that you will want or something that you must have, but it never desires and it never delivers on its promise. And you've got to send it packing. What to do with the inner struggles for a maturing, growing believer? First of all, you need to identify the temptation or sin. Identify the temptation or sin. We must call sin what it is. Now, not every temptation is sin, and if you can identify the temptation before it becomes sin, you will be way ahead. What temptations or what sins take up residence in your heart and life right now? Well, if you love the Lord, you're seeking to please Him. You may be one of Satan's prime targets. He's seeking to take, bring temptation and some sin, maybe a secret sin, to take up residence in your life so that you will be less of a threat to His kingdom, so that you will be less of an asset to the Lord's kingdom. But I want to tell you something. While the Lord knows every thought and what is in your heart, He knows or intervene, as the Bible talks about here, Satan does not. The Bible tell, does not tell us that Satan knows our every thought and every... He knows our tendencies. He knows our nature. He uses things like selfishness and pride and human desire to lure us into sin. Our first job is to identify that which we know does not please God. And then we need to stop the process. 
We need to stop the process. We need to send temptation and the sin that we have identified down the road. Do you remember Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off? He was using hyperbole, exaggeration to make a point. Identify the sin of the temptation and then cut it off. And while Jesus may not have meant literal surgery, he did say it would be better for you to lose a hand than to let sin have control. The Bible talks about the process of sin on more than one place. It begins with the eye and then moves to the heart or moves to the mind before it becomes action or before it becomes sin. Somewhere in the process we need to learn to stop the continuation. Not every thought or not every feeling is a sin. You sometimes cannot help the way you feel or the way you feel about a particular circumstance or something or even someone at the very first time. Your first thought or feeling is not always a sin. It depends on what you do with those feelings. If you harbor bad thoughts and feelings, then it becomes sin. To see a man and to think that he is handsome is not a sin. To think a woman is nice looking is not a sin. To share that thought with your spouse may show that you're not very bright, but it's not necessarily a sin. However, to harbor that thought, again, to allow it to take up residence is dangerous. You know the line and it must be kept in check. It's the same way with anger. The Bible says, be ye angry, but do not sin. Anger is a feeling that you sometimes cannot help. And sin is allowing anger to linger, to turn to hate, to turn to action. Well, we could come up with lots of examples probably. The things of this world, to want and to desire the things of this world, to have, see something, think, well, that would be nice, but to allow that to lead to coveting or to greed is sin. hope that you're catching the biblical idea here. Young people, we have a few that are here, you can stop the process. And sometimes you can stop by turning and walking away because sometimes particularly, not just young people, but it's to be a desire to be part of the crowd, to be included. When instead you need to be bold and stand alone or seek to be able to stand with others who feel and live the same way and want to serve Christ like you. To use an old illustration, we cannot stop the birds from flying over our head, but we can stop them from making a nest in our hair. Stop the process that leads to sin. And then we need to turn it over to the Lord. We need to turn it over to the Lord. Philippians 2 tells us that we are to be able to identify with Christ and we want to combat self-centeredness. We must have the mind of Christ. We must yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit. We are not to expect to obey God in our own strength. It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to follow the Lord's will. He helps us to identify sin. Without Him, we would not be able to stop the process. Now, Paul, of course, writing under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he uses a certainly genius literary style because he begins to write. He's writing about himself and everything that he says is truth. And as he's writing, we think, well, may he's sharing his frustrations with sin and temptation with his own sinful desire. And perhaps as we read this, if we understand it, well, we can relate to it. Boy, that, that sounds like me. That's some of the things I'm going through. And as he talks about it, it's almost as if he's writing to where it seems a little bit hopeless. I'm a wretched man. Who can help me? And just when we think it's a rhetorical question, or we think maybe the answer is going to be, well, no one can help you. And then we find the answer in the last verse of this chapter. It's He's setting us up. Because He tells us, who can help us? It's Jesus. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. On Palm Sunday, 
when the crowds yelled and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Five days later on Good Friday, they yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And through the cross, he conquered death and gives life, life everlasting. But also through the cross, he nailed our sins to the cross so that we can be forgiven and we can make it through the storms, the ones that we can see and the ones that we cannot see and come out victorious on the other side. For he is our deliverer through his power to make it through the struggles with temptation and sin and conflict. But I want you to understand, you've got to turn it over to him. You've got to trust him. Now what does it mean to trust Jesus? Does it mean that we say that we trust Him? Does it mean that we, well, uh, we have a good feeling of trust? We wait upon the Lord? We pray and trust Him? Yes, and all of those things. But primarily, we show that we trust Him by doing the right thing. You see, you can say that you trust the Lord. But if you continue in a lifestyle of sin you're actually demonstrating that you don't trust the Lord. To never have the inner struggle that says, Lord, this is what I want to do. Help me with what I need to do. Help me to overcome this temptation. Help me to be able to make it as Paul is writing here. However, i got to warn you. This is a good news, bad news type of thing. The bad news is struggles are going to continue. Uh, The struggle does not stop. But the good news is that victory's already won in Jesus. How long are we going to continue in the struggle to combat temptation? 1 John 3, 2 tells us, Till we become like Him when we shall see Him as He is. It's a lifetime process to be like Christ, but don't give up the struggle. Some battles are worth fighting. The victory put in the hands of Jesus is assured. There's something else that happens often when... Warm, moist air is met with cold, dry air. And the Lord woke, it up with you, woke up with you this morning about 6.30 or 7. Thunder booms and lightning flashes. I was thinking this morning, man, we'd have a big crowd. The Lord woke everybody up at 6.30 or 7. They might have, you're up, come on and be a part. I'm still looking for them at 11 o'clock, you understand. But I am reminded again of that song, Aaron. We've sung it here before. and It was a vacation Bible school song. Uh, I've... Heard it in the thunder, seen it in the lightning, felt it in the rain. My Lord is near me all the time. And the second verse of that particular hymn says, When the thunder shakes the mighty hills and trembles every tree, then I know a God so great and strong can surely harbor me. Paul, in his last letter before he died, he said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. So what do we need to do? We need to keep fighting the good fight and don't give up. When the cold air of the world meets and the warm touch of the Holy Spirit, God's power is able to be known in our life like no other times. Why do we have such inner struggles? Why do we combat temptation and sin so much? A lot of reasons maybe we'll never be able to know till we get to heaven. But one reason is for sure. You'll never know the power of the resurrected Lord until He's helped you through some struggle. Until He's walked you through Those times that you know you're closer than you've ever been before. Because we know the power of the resurrected Christ. He's able to give you eternal life. 
and He's able to deliver you so that you're able to say, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we've talked about the three types of people that's mentioned in the New Testament. Consider where you see yourself. Are you a believer that's seeking to grow in the Lord and mature to become more like Christ? Keep fighting the good fight. Stay strong and you'll become more like Jesus to be used by Him. Your struggle for following Jesus honors Him. If you're a believer, but today you've realized that you've invested more in this world than in the kingdom of God, there's only one fight worth fighting. One race that is worth the prize, and that's the race to follow Jesus. Today, decide that you'll give more of your heart and mind to Jesus and invest in God's kingdom. Maybe you've realized today that your struggle is not to be like Jesus, but you need to accept Jesus. You need to ask Him to be your, be your Savior and Lord. Turn from being a non-Christian to a growing, maturing Christian who's experienced the love of Christ for the first time. The journey's not always promised to be easy. But it is the only journey and the only one that gives life and purpose. We want to follow Him and we want to honor our Lord and Savior. Let's bow together. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to come be in worship today. We thank You, Father, for not being in the center of a real storm today that uh, we can see. We pray, for, Father, for those who perhaps have been in storms today already or maybe those who are experiencing those even now. We pray, Father, for uh, certainly the, there will be no loss of life. We pray for those who perhaps have already lost property or whatever's taking place, Lord, we know that you're going to be make yourself uh, known and be present there. Father, we pray for inner struggles and inner storms that we have in our own hearts and lives. Father, and sometimes it is to do what's right and to follow you. We pray, Father, that you will lead us on this Palm Sunday to declare that you're King of kings and Lord of lords. May we turn everything over to you. We thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. We pray, Father, for one who may be here that does not know you as Lord and Savior. Today may be the day of salvation. Lift up these prayers, Father, as we move to our time of decision. Father, we pray that you'll still continue to be at work in our life. In his precious name, we lift these prayers. Amen.